Hello, welcome to Mind Chat. My name's Philip Goff. Hello, welcome. I'm Keith Frankish. How are you doing, Keith? Not too bad. Not too bad. Recovering from uh, from a bout of, of COVID. Oh, yeah, you've been pretty ill with it. Sorry to I, hear that. It's the after effects are uh, dragging on, the tiredness, but um, I'm getting there. How about you? I'm utterly miserable. I'm afraid I've got my research leave has ended and I'm straight back into marking or grading as our US friends say. And I think I'm, mark grading is like it's a terrible mix of boredom and responsibility. So it's like really boring, but you can't kind of drift off because, you know, it's really important for the student and stuff. And anyway, actually, I feel bad now complaining after you've had COVID and I'm saying, oh, I've got a mark essays anyway <laughs> well we, we all have our, have our burdens don't we well uh, don't you don't you have something to say to me um i don't know what was that was some you've not forgotten have you what have i forgotten it's our anniversary oh 12 yeah. months of doing mind oh, chat right uh, oh happy anniversary I mean, it's a, it's an important date. I mean, I actually. I oh, you got me flowers! Oh, that's beautiful. Oh, thank. Oh, they're really lovely, Keith. Thank you very much. I'm really touched. Actually, you think I forgot? I didn't really. I got you something. Really, you ready? Yeah, yeah. Hey. Got your pineapple. Everyone Pine likes a pineapple. A pineapple. Everyone likes a pineapple. It's the biggest one in the shop. Who gives anyone a pineapple for their anniversary? I thought you'd like a pineapple. One pound seventy-five. That cost me. I, I, I try to empathise with all these pansides, and I try to understand. Pineapple. Pineapple. I give it. I give it. No gratitude among some people. Uh, anyway, it's been a good year, hasn't it? I think it's gone well. It's taken us a while to get the hang of the technology and stuff, but I think my microphone is finally working. Well, that's the best anniversary present, isn't it? A <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, good audio. Um, it's been a good... I, I've, I've really enjoyed it. I've, I've, we've had some great guests. We've had some great discussions. It's been lively. It's been challenging. It's been... I've enjoyed it. And, uh, well, we've more to come, haven't we? Yes, nearly finished season two. So after this, after this, well, it's the next episode is um, Angela Mendelevici, part two on how does consciousness connect us to reality, giving a very different view to the one Barry Lowe, uh, not Barry Lowe, sorry, David Papineau has, who we had on a couple of months ago. And then the climax is going to be Sophie Ann Barich talking about the neuroscience and philosophy of smell. Yep. So, yeah. And we're making plans for the next season, aren't we? Some exciting, exciting guests. So, what have we got today, Dr. Frankish? Right. Well, we've 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 got a first for mind change. We've got a returning guest. We've got uh, Sean Carroll, um, um, professor of uh, uh, theoretical physics at uh, the California Institute of Technology is is rejoining us. His, his last uh, episode was so successful, and we had such a great discussion that we're getting him back for more um, 
And uh, we've got another first. We've got two guests, not just Sean, but a very distinguished uh, uh, philosopher of science, Barry Lower, who is a distinguished uh, professor of philosophy at, at Rutgers University and director of the Rutgers Center for Philosophy and the Sciences. And uh, Barry's worked in many areas of philosophy, um, philosophy of mind, metaphysics, epistemology, history of philosophy, um, philosophical logic, but he's, he's, he's probably best known for his work in philosophy of science and, uh, and the philosophy of cosmology, which is a I think, fascinating area. Um, and he's worked on, uh, like Sean, he's, he's worked on the interpretation of, of quantum mechanics. So, we, I mean, two wonderful guests, exciting topic. What more could you ask? Brilliant. Should I bring them in? Bring them in. Let's go. Hello, Sean. Hello, Barry. How are you doing? Welcome to Mind Chat. Hi, guys. Hello. Brilliant. Well, thanks for coming back, Sean. Um, so usually we start by um, briefly getting to know our guests a bit. We've already done that with Sean. So if you've never heard of Sean Carroll, you can look back at our previous episode. Um, uh, Barry, do you want to just tell us a little bit about yourself? What kind of philosophy you're interested in? Maybe how you first got into philosophy and... Yeah, sure. like? so I started off wanting to be a mathematical logician, discovered that was too difficult, <laughs> and so got interested in philosophy of physics, and then philosophy of mind, and was working in philosophy of mind, particularly interested in the question of, in virtue of what does anything in your brain have the, the mental content it has, discovered that was too hard, and so then started working on philosophy of quantum mechanics. <laughs> That was easier. <laughs> <laughs> so you found something easy in the end. I'm glad. Happy ending. It's still hard, though. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, actually, Barry is the reason I made a connection with Sean, because I, so I was in uh, New York staying with Barry for a conference at Rutgers, and, um, and I was just happened to be reading Sean's book, and I was saying, he's pretty clued up on philosophy. You know, you, you often you get physicists writing about philosophy, like saying, oh, it's a load of rubbish and not knowing what they're talking about, but, you know, he's pretty clued up. And, and then, do you remember what you said, Barry? The exact words? You said, that's because he, he talks to me. <laughs> that's why he's clued <laughs> up about philosophy. No, so I thought I said anything that's self-aggrandizing. I can vouch for it. I know, I know a lot about cosmology from having talked to Sean, though. <laughs> I think you were just being tongue-in-cheek, really. But... Yeah, so um, anyway, our purpose today is to continue an aspect of the discussion we had last time with Sean that we couldn't stop and with some blog posts written and stuff. And um, So what we're going to do, I, I'm going to actually kick things off with a very short five-minute PowerPoint presentation, another first on, on uh, MindChat, but only a very short one, and then invite uh, Sean, so giving kind of my perspective on the discussion and what I think, and then Sean to um, comment on that for five minutes or so, or however long he wants to, and then Barry to comment on that, and then we'll just see what happens. Uh, lots of people have said happy anniversary. Thank you very much. Okay, so uh, hopefully I've got some slides that are going to appear here. Oh, wow, this is a first. I, I just... Realized I didn't know how to do this five minutes before we went on, but it's worked out swimmingly. All right, so I don't want to go on too long. Um, 
Okay, so our topic is what does physics tell us about consciousness? I thought I'd start just laying out the kind of main options on consciousness that might be relevant to today's discussion. So first, I guess the, the view uh, both Sean and Barry are fans of, physicalist reductionism, roughly the view that consciousness weakly emerges from physics. Uh, so I actually like the way Sean characterizes weak emergence. The view would be just that in some sense, all there really is is the stuff that physics specifies. But then when we talk about consciousness or anything else, that's just a sort of different way of describing the stuff physics talks about. So uh, I like to give the analogy of a party. You know, I could say, you know, there's people dancing and drinking at Keith's tonight. Or I could say there's a, there's a party at Keith's tonight. And that's just kind of two different ways of saying the same thing. It's not like the party is this extra thing that floats above the heads of the people dancing and drinking. It's to say there's a party is just another way of saying people dancing, drinking. So similarly, to say there's consciousness is just a different way of carving up the stuff physics talks about. Um, so that's physicalist reductionism. Uh, but then we've got a kind of different kind of reductionism. So that, then there's two, two views I'm kind of open to. Panpsychist reductionism, which would be, does it the other way around? Physics weakly emerges from consciousness. So roughly the idea is there's at the fundamental, and, and the thought is this is possible because of the purely mathematical nature of physics. So the thought is at the fundamental level, we just got kind of networks of very simple conscious entities, and they behave because they have very simple consciousness, they behave in very simple, predictable ways. You know, humans behave in complicated ways because we have complicated consciousness, they behave in simple ways because they have simple consciousness, and then through their interactions, they realize certain mathematical structures. And then the thought is those mathematical structures are the mathematical structures identified by physicists. So physics kinds of emerges from consciousness. Okay, so that's one option I'm sympathetic to. And then, and then this is the view we're probably mainly going to be interested in today, strong emergentism. So this is the view that consciousness strongly emerges from the physical. So consciousness in some sense arises from the physical, but it's a genuinely radically new and fundamental thing in its own right. Um, so contrast it with the weak emergence. You know, weak emergence, talk of consciousness is just another way of talking about um, what physics talks about. But then strong emergences, although, although in some sense consciousness arises, is brought into being by the physical, it's something genuinely new. And, and because it's genuinely new, it brings into existence new fundamental laws, or at least modifies old laws. So strong emergence is true then if you're trying to work out what's going to happen in the brain just from physics, you're going to make some mistakes because it's not just physics running the show. There's these new laws of nature that strongly emergent consciousness has brought into being. Okay, they're the options. Okay, so what's the main dispute here that we want to focus on from last time? So, so I'll give my version of it, Sean, if he, if he disagrees, could give a, uh, his own spin in a moment, his own... Uh, Spin sounds slightly projected, doesn't matter, does it? Okay, so his view, as I understand it, is that we have good reason to think uh, the core theory, uh, which is uh, the standard model of particle physics plus the weak limit of general relativity. So viewers may know that there's a big challenge getting quantum mechanics to fit with general relativity. But as I understand it, the, the, the places where it's hard to get them together are just in non-terrestrial circumstances, like when you're near a black hole or something, in terms of the, ma the matter of our body and brains, you can bring them together in 
what, what, what is referred to as the core theory. So Sean thinks we have good reason to think that's the correct and complete theory of the matter in our bodies and brains. And, and this gives us ra- grounds for thinking there's no strong emergence in the brain because if there was, then the core theory wouldn't be the correct and complete account of what's going on in our brains because there'd be these new laws of nature or at least modifications of the old laws that consciousness brings into being. Okay, so my initial response here is that you know, that the experimental conditions in which we've tested the core theory do not include complex biological systems, as Sean says in the, the paper he wrote in response to my book. We should put that in the, in the notes. Um, you know, most of the experiments work with just small numbers of particles, and hence we've got no strong empirical ground to deny con- strong emergence in the brain. Okay, now, now I want to start, I want to make, be a bit more detailed. I want to make a kind of point of an agreement here. Um, so I, I agree that on the basis of Occam's razor, which we as philosophers and scientists we should respect, we should assume there's no strong emergence in the absence of reason to think there is strong emergence, right? But I think Sean is just theorizing about reality on the basis of experiments. And I think that's not the only hard data. I think the reality of consciousness itself is a hard datum that it should inform our theorizing about reality. So consciousness is not publicly observable, but we know it's real. We know it's real just for our immediate awareness of our feelings and experiences. And so any theory of reality which has a shot at being true has to account for that. So I th- as I often say, I think I really believe scientists and philosophers of the future will look back at the late 20th, early 21st century and just think it's baffling that scientists and philosophers didn't make more of this resource. You know, we've got something we know something close to certainty is real and yet reflection on it forms almost no part of our theorizing about ultimate reality so that's uh so so we know consciousness is real and if as many philosophers uh believe we have philosophical grounds for thinking that reductionism about consciousness either physicalist or panpsychist is false then we have very strong reason to accept strong emergence because consciousness is real reductionism doesn't work so it must be strongly emergent. And for the reasons I've said, I don't think we've got any significant reason, to empirical reason, to deny strong emergence. So in that case, we'd have strong reason to accept strong emergence and no significant empirical reason to deny it. Okay, now I think, nearly finished, I think um, Sean and Barry might say, well, that's fine because we can be reductionists about consciousness. Uh, so why, why would we think that? Why accept reductionism? A lot of people have this, I think, are motivated by this thought. Uh, you know, physical science has been so successful in reductively explaining so much of our universe. Surely consciousness is one day going to go the same way. But I, I, I don't think this is a... So there's a sort of inductive argument from the success of science that it's one day going to deal with consciousness in the same way. Physical science, that is. Uh, I don't think this is a good argument, inductive argument, because... Uh, you know, what physical science has been really good at is accounting for publicly observable behavior. You know, you've got a, a system, publicly observable system. You can explain its behavior by postulating a mechanism, ultimately laws of physics. Physical science is really good at that. But that's not what we're ultimately trying to do when we're explaining consciousness. We're trying to explain these in, invisible subjective qualities that aren't publicly observable, but can only be accessed from the inside by the person having the experience, these colors, sounds, smells, tastes that we're immediately aware of in our experience. So it's a completely different explanatory project. So I think, you know, I know 
Sean likes to be a good Bayesian. I think as good Bayesians, we shouldn't think that the, the success of physical science in explaining publicly accessible behavior gives us any reason to think it's going to be able to explain private subjective qualities. Uh, it's because it's a totally different expansionary project. So, I mean, an analogy I've given a bit recently is it's like saying uh, telescopes are really good for astronomy. Probably they'll be good in pure math. You know, it's just a totally different expansionary project. Okay, so my... Uh, oh, but... So, so I don't think we've got any good reason to accept reductionism, physical reductionism about consciousness, but is there any good reason to deny physical reductionism? I, I haven't specified that. I'm talking about physical reductionism right now. Well, I think, yes, there is. Sorry, people have heard me say this before, but just briefly, I think we find that our consciousness is populated by these subjective qualities, colors, sounds, smells, tastes, that you can't fully capture in the purely quantitative language of physical science. You can capture a lot about our experience, the structure of our experience in quantitative terms, but you can't fully capture the, for example, the redness of a red experience. And I think you'd have to be able to do that to reductively explain these qualities in the terms of physical science. You'd have to get your neuroscience theory to sort of articulate those qualities and then reduce them to patterns of neural firings. So, so I don't think physicalist reductionism can work. Obviously, we're just touching on the start of the debate. But so my conclusion from that is, you know, either panpsychist reductionism is true or strong emergentism is true. I'm open to strong emergentism in a panpsychist version. Someone like David Chalmers would have non-panpsychist versions of it. I, I, I'm open to it in a panpsychist version. Um, okay, nearly done. So, so just final slide. Uh, here's the things I think we should discuss, although open to people have other thoughts. So I think the, the, the first and perhaps main thing, so, so here's my view, and I'd like to know what people, what people think of this. So, so, I, I, so I, I think that reflection on physics, this is my central claim, okay? Reflection on physics has just very little evidential force in deciding this issue of whether consciousness is strongly emergent. But why is that? Well, look, I, either the philosophical arguments against reduction work or they don't work. If the philosophical arguments against reduction work, then we have very good, very good reason to think strong emergence is true, because we know consciousness exists. If it, if it's not reduced, if it can't be reduced, then it must be strongly emergent. And as I've said, we've got no significant empirical evidence to the contrary. On the other hand, if the ph 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 philosophical arguments against reductionism don't work, then we don't need any empirical reason to doubt strong emergence because we just go off Occam's razor, you know. Okay, so that's my main claim that Sean seems to think, and I think Barry thinks possibly, um, that you know, reflection on physics can tell, can give us strong reason to think strong emergence. Well, I, I want to deny that e either way. If, if reductionism arguments against reduction work, or if they don't work, okay. So I think you know we see how far we get with that. Two perhaps supplementary points we could we could say, um, you know, do my, the kind of arguments I just gestured at uh, work against physicalist reductionism. Uh, um, and, and Keith, to an extent, at least if we're talking about phenomenal consciousness, I think Keith's sympathetic to those arguments. That's why he's an illusionist. Um, and then third discussion point, you know, do Sean's argue, so Sean's offered arguments against a panpsychist reductionism. He thinks it just ends up being epiphenomenalism. So we could perhaps discuss that as well. Anyway, over to you guys. That's my, sorry, I've probably gone on a bit longer than five minutes, haven't I? So feel free to take as long as you want. Um, Sean, what do you reckon? Sure, thanks, Philip. That was actually very helpful. Um, 
So I'll, I'll try to be brief in my own views because probably most of the people listening in have heard them before. But here is the issue for panpsychism as I see it. We have uh, the fact that human beings contain electrons and protons and neutrons. I'm not even saying that they're entirely made up of those particles, but every human being I've ever met has atoms inside them. And we have, as Philip alluded to, an extraordinarily empirically successful theory of the behavior of electrons, protons, and neutrons, and the associated forces that push them around, called the core theory of physics. And furthermore, I'll get to a little bit more in a second, but the core theory is not just a statement of facts about what happens in particle physics experiments. It comes with a very well-justified domain of applicability where we have good reasons to believe it is correct. And human beings and everything that happens in their bodies are well within that domain of applicability. So here is the dilemma for the would-be panpsychist who wants to put consciousness at the fundamental base of everything. Either they say, sure, you have the core theory. It makes predictions for how the electrons and protons and neutrons in a human being will behave. I'm not going to change that, but I'm going to change the nature of it. In that case, I would say, who cares? <laughs> you're, you're adding something that in no way plays an explanatory role in how I behave or how I talk about myself. Good on you. Have fun. I have other things to do. The other option that the panpsychist can make is to say, I don't think the core theory is right for human beings. I think that we need to modify it in some way. And I was very happy with Philip's little introduction there because in, <clears throat> I might be wrong about this, but in past interactions, I've noticed some prevarication on Philip's part, like not quite wanting to buy into either one of those options. But I th thought that in his intro there, he was very clear that in the strong emergentist perspective, that would count as modifying the core theory, which it would. That is correct. I, I agree. So. One thing that Philip didn't really do in any careful way is to define strong emergence. So let me give my best uh, shot at that. Um, he gave examples, but it's, it's, it is a subtle thing because people, again, try to take refuge in fuzziness of language sometimes. And I'm very fond of the, the, the uh, categorization that was offered by Mark Badao in his famous paper on emergence, where he says, look, if you have a what you might call a microscopic theory, you have a theory of the fundamental level. It might not be the world's most fundamental level, but you have a more fundamental and less fundamental set of levels. And you have a theory of the fundamental level. I actually never use the word reductionism myself, but uh, that's okay. It's not crucial for our, our talk today. And he says, you can put that microscopic theory on a computer and you can make predictions using it. And if you have weak emergence, there is a compatibility you can take the microscopic theory, you can talk about how it leads in the macro world to uh, emergent phenomena, and you can sort of evolve those forward in time in the macro theory, or you could put the micro theory on a computer, evolve that forward in time, and then ask what emergent properties you get, and you get the same answer either way. There's a commuting diagram in the technical jargon. Strong emergence is when, sure, you're welcome to put your microscopic theory on a computer, and you're welcome to say what it would predict, but it will be wrong because once you consider the predictions of the microscopic theory in certain macroscopic circumstances, it fails. So I'm very open to contemplating the possibility of strong emergence. In the case of that we're considering right now, it would mean 
that I could take the quantum state of the electrons, protons, neutrons in a human being, uh, run those through the dynamical equations of the core theory, and I would find that I get it wrong. That's what strong emergence would say. It is saying that the core theory fails in the context of human beings. So why would we ever, you know, what, what is the evidence that we have one way or the other, whether the core theory works or not in the case of human beings? Um, so I completely understand Philip's point that, you know, we haven't tested, we, we, you know, we've tested behavior of atoms and et cetera in certain laboratory circumstances, but not literally in human brains to any high precision. So we don't know whether the theory applies there or not. But this is something that is, you need to understand the details and, and dig into the details of how the physics theory works. And this is what I explained in my paper that probably you'll, you'll put in links somewhere. The argument is not simply that. We have done a lot of experiments, and so far it works. Therefore, it'll probably keep working. That is not the argument. The, the core theory that we are talking about right here is a quantum field theory. It is an effective quantum field theory. And one of the things about quantum field theories is they come with a specification of the domain of applicability in which they should be trusted. So if you believe the fundamental principles of effective quantum field theory, like locality and Lorentz invariance, we can talk about what those principles are. But if you believe those fundamental principles, we can say with quite high confidence that the brain is extremely within the domain where the core theory is supposed to apply. So what this means is you're very welcome to contemplate deviations from it. I'm certainly not saying that you're not allowed to change the core theory because you think that if you don't do it, you can't explain consciousness. By all means, do that. But be honest about what you're up against. You're not just taking advantage of some vagueness or some unknown territory in the regime of physics. You're saying, yes, physics says this should happen in a certain way in this regime, and I think that physics is wrong about that. And in my mind, that means you should tell me exactly how it's wrong. Because when we build up the core theory and other quantum field theories, we do so for good reasons. We have zero reason on the basis of physics to, uh, un to imagine that the behavior of electrons is any different in an atom or a rock or a human brain. If you could, you're allowed to contemplate that it is. Tell me how it is. How do you preserve energy conservation and gauge invariance? Where do the interactions come from? How, how are you not violating locality by doing this? The Everything that happens in the human brain is not only within the domain of applicability, but really, really, really deep into the domain of applicability. Like it's not in the boundary where we're not sure what's happening because we can really quantitatively specify where that boundary is. So um, that's the main point I wanted to make, but let me just very, very quickly touch on a couple of the points that Philip made explicitly, and I will try to be very quick. Uh, Philip says that consciousness is hard data. Sure, absolutely it is. I have no trouble explaining it. <laughs> and I do think that uh, philosophers and historians of science in the future will be aghast, but not at what we're talking about now, but not for the reasons that Philip brings up. Um, he tries to make a distinction between the data we have inside ourselves, the purely subjective experiences versus the external data. I just think that this distinction is completely fake. I mean, you can imagine all sorts of similar distinctions. You could, you could make up a distinction about what happens inside planets versus what happens outside planets. We've never been at the core of the earth. 
that's just not how science works. We can make measurements here outside the Earth, and on the basis of those measurements, infer what happens inside because they're connected to each other in some way. It's exactly the same thing going on with consciousness, which is why I think this distinction is entirely fake. Either you think that what's happening inside us has no impact on what's happening outside, or we're just doing regular science and we're trying to find out exactly what is the best theory of all of it at once. And I think that the ordinary physics as it, as it stands does a perfectly good job at that. Finally, um, there are these, there, there's Philip's last argument that in some sense the physics doesn't matter because the anti-reductionist arguments either work or don't. There's a little bit, that was a little bit of a slip there. Uh, he's trying to pull one over on us because, of course, in the real world, we're not 100% sure whether the anti-reductionists' arguments work or don't. We have some credence that they work or don't. And that credence is going to be affected by how dramatic the anti-reductionist claim is. If you need to overthrow the most precious principles of modern physics to do it, you have a little bit of a right to decrease your credence. This is exactly the argument that I tried to make in my paper. Again, it was not, not novel to me in any way. But consciousness is the hardest thing to understand. We all agree on that. It is extremely complicated and subtle and difficult to wrap our minds around. To me, that's exactly why we should not overthrow the laws of physics in order to try to do it. Thank you very much. Just on the um, whether I've changed my mind, the point about um, is strong emergence essentially to be understood as a violation of the core theory. I do have a slide on that. Uh, so, but I just think it's a it's a boring issue. We got too bogged down in. So I'm happy for most of this discussion at least to sort of concede that point. But may, maybe at the end we could come back to that. I just don't want to get lost in that not very interesting issue. I don't think. But anyway, uh, I won't say anything on it. I'm desperate to, to say things but i'll hold off and let barry share some thoughts yeah i'm sure i'll give you more to say um, <laughs> first of all i completely agree with i think everything sean said um but what i would organize this discussion in the following way there are two parts to it one is the arguments against reductionism and the other uh, part is the arguments against non-reductionism I think the arguments against reductionism are, I'm not sure what a word I can use in polite society here, but they're crap. They're really, really bad. They're based on a confusion that philosophers can help dispel if they pay attention. Um, and then there are problems with the anti-reductionist view I come back to. The confusion I have in mind is the confusion between concepts and properties or features of the world. It's right that there's no reduction of uh, phenomenal or consciousness concepts to physical concepts, but that has to do with representations, with concepts. Um, there is a reduction, for example, of a sort of certain kind of physical concepts, higher level physical concepts, like for example, temperature or pressure to more fundamental physical concepts like those who found in statistical mechanics. Um, there, the reduction involves both understanding the concepts, which are functional concepts, and also understanding the physics, which explains how it is that certain physical phenomena make for something that satisfies the functional concepts. In the case of consciousness, that can't be done because the way we understand our own conscious states 
is by concepts we apply subjectively to our own selves. We don't apply, they're not functional concepts. So I know that I might now have a certain sort of itch in my toe, which I do, um, not because of any functional features of the itch, they do have functional features, features of course, but I just know it directly. That's the way that concept works. Um, let me give you another example. It's not a perfect analogy, but it may give you an idea of what I have in mind. Um, we have indexical concepts in our language like I. So imagine that somebody said, well, I know this is where this person is, here's where, where Sean is, here's where Philip is, here's where Keith is, here's where Barry is, but where am I? It would be a confusion <laughs> because the way the word I works is I, it refers to whoever's using the concept I. And of course, since it was me who was using it, it refers to, to Barry, to me. I think consciousness concepts are like that in a way. They're a mix. So I, I think the, it's going to be hopeless. I think actually what, if Sean is thinking that in the future enough will be discovered about physics so that one could say, ah, now I see what it is to feel uh, an itch in your toe. I think he's wrong about that. That part, I maybe I'm on the side of Philip with. I don't think anything in physics will, 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 will do that just because of the nature of consciousness concepts. But that shouldn't lead us to think that consciousness isn't a physical feature of the world. So that's the first big point I wanted to make that may take us more into philosophy than the physics part that you want to go, but that's one point. I, I maybe should mention that this idea uh, of, of treating these so-called hard problems in this way dates back to a former colleague of mine on Sadly's deceased named Brian Lohr, who had basically this way of thinking about this stuff. And I've learned a lot from, from him and my wife, Kari Balag, who was a student of his. Um, on the other side, I'm very puzzled by how the non-reductionist is supposed to be thinking about things. The non-reductionist thinks that at the very fundamental is something which has a little bit of consciousness. Now, I suppose whatever the electrons are doing, they're not feeling itches in their toes. They don't have, a, they don't have toes, they can't do that. I don't know what it is for them to have these little bit of consciousness, but whatever it is that's supposed to be conscious that they have, I guess when a lot of them get together, you know, a 10 to the whatever, 29th or something electrons get them more than that, get together in, in, a, in a certain structure, they end up uh, putting all their little bits of consciousness together to make for an itch in my toe. You need a theory of that. How in the world is that gonna go? If we had a theory of that, we basically would have what physics would want to come up with an account of how what electrons, when you get a lot of them together, get an itch in your toe. I don't see how adding a little bit of consciousness in the electrons helps out there at all. And in fact, in thinking about this a little bit, I, I mentioned this to Philip in an email, I realized that in fact, in a sense, I was a panpsychist in the following sense. <laughs> I think that of course, whatever electrons, protons, or whatever the quantum fields are, whatever it is, it is the stuff that has enabled it to be that when it gets in very complicated configurations, can produce an itch in my toe. If that's what it is to be a panpsychist, I'm a panpsychist. So I'll declare 
my allegiance to it in the, under that form. But I don't think I want to have the view that because the hard problem is hard, I have to attribute something like little itches into my electron, little electron itches. So that's basically my contribution. Thanks, Barry. So I think you've you've commented the sort of arguments against uh, you've you've rejected the arguments against physicalism, um, and just I, I feel I need to just bring in so so you're saying the arguments are crap, but I mean just to just to get the, the, the we actually have hard data on what philosophers think on this, so I guess just over fifty percent agree with you, and just over thirty percent agree with me. So I just want to get clear: this isn't like a a totally fringe position. Is that how philosophers settle their disputes? <laughs> What's that? No, 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 no. But yeah, okay. But I'm just, uh, yeah. You c- sure you can think the arguments are crap, but just to say, like, sure. this is this is a, a <laughs> no, matter I, at which I, there is. I, I'm little surprised thing. that fifty percent are on my side. I think it depends where, which philosophers you're you're asking about this. Actually, well, philo- well, the Phil Papers survey. One kind of answer, and phys- yeah. phys- philosophers of science give another, and so on. That's probably right. Um, but but you haven't commented. Yeah, you did. I don't think you said anything about about the. Uh, so you've given art. You've you've rejected the arguments against physicalist reductionism, the arguments against physicalist reductionism. You've cast doubt on the. You've re- you've given arguments against panpsychist reductionism. But what about this first topic? That does physics give us reason to doubt strong emergence? So my so my claim is you know that given that we've never. You know the the experiments done to support the core theory are, you know, uh, done with small numbers of particles. They're not done in brains or biological systems. We don't really have any strong yeah. empirical reason to doubt the strong emergence in the brain. I mean, you have a, a kind of simplicity ground, uh, but I think that's not a very strong reason. A sort of simplicity. It's just like, you know, unless we have reason to think otherwise. By saying, I agree with everything that Sean said. I think Sean okay. covered that perfectly. Okay. Okay. I don't think it's merely simplicity. It's, well, the reasons he gave about the very nature of what the fundamental physics is like, but also more generally, of course, anybody could take the attitude towards any scientific discovery of, well, maybe tomorrow we'll find out something different. Of course. But that's not the way science works or the way we should think about things. You know, we, we've found this method, the scientific method, which has given us a lot of information about the world, enabled us to construct theories about the world. The theories get tested. The theories look like they're working out. It's forever really a deep mystery. I wish I memorized it. There's a great quote from Einstein, in which he's expressing his awe in the fact this is true, and then saying it doesn't cause him to believe in God. Okay, But it is awesome that physics works, that science works. It's astonishing, but it does. And so I think that's where we should stick with it. I think once one understands for philosophical reasons, what's wrong with the arguments, they're very clever and interesting arguments that come from from Dave Chalmers, from you, from Frank Jackson, many other people. They're clever and interesting arguments, but I think when you examine them carefully, you see that they make mistakes. If I could say one more thing, I've been teaching this stuff recently, and I noticed something that is obvious to philosophers maybe, but it didn't strike me so much before, is how much of the time that philosophers spend on what they think of as very deep mysteries, consciousness, free will especially, personal identity, get structured around the following thing. 
some really, really smart, clever philosophers come up with an argument to prove that it can't be like that. It must be that personal identity involves there being some sort of a non-physical thing that continues. It must be that human beings have some free will which enables them to move their hands around independently of the physics. It must be that our brains are such that they are able to be produced or be associated with something that isn't physical. They come up with arguments like this. The arguments are often interesting and that they're great that they come up with it because then the other philosophers like me can come along and get paid to show what's wrong with those arguments. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> but I think in almost every, I think in every one of those cases, in some cases I feel very confident of this, those arguments are just not good. So, I, I mean, maybe we could just, did you, did you want to come in at all, Keith? Or maybe otherwise we could just keep going around, but did you, did you want to just point? Bring um, it up well, just, just, I mean, I, I, I'm with Sean and Barry on this, so. Everyone um, ganging up on me again. But I would, I, no, I'd, but I'd actually <laughs> also go a little bit on the offensive against, against your it, really. alternative source of data. I mean, uh, you know, that you have this, you have this introspective data that you trust that you think should actually is should stand on on a par with the with 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 the the data of science and the conclusions of science and you think in fact you're thinking we should trust it more than we trust uh scientific theorizing um i just i don't buy that what you have is a lot of strong convictions about your own mind and about uh <clears throat> its nature and its powers and its and its inexplicability and so on Okay, you have them. Interesting. Fine. Let's try and work out why you have them. Now, you might have them because they're true. Oh, you might have them for other reasons. I mean, look, one of my, look, I've got this very strong conviction that I, you know, that I, mean, I don't trust it, but I'm not, I won't say conviction, a very strong sense that things around me in the world are colored in a very naive sort of way that, you know, that they're sort of painted with these <laughs> irreducible colors that, these, these lovely flowers here that uh, that their that their leaves have got this intrinsic sort of greenness to them, and the flowers have got this beautiful orange color to them, and it's out there in the world. It's not uh, they, 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 well, not so much that. And I've got this sense that these colors are you know intrinsic features of the world that are, and I can't understand how physics can explain how these things can have these colors. Uh, so I go, okay, so physics is, is, is wrong. These, these, they can't explain, never mind. It can't explain my mind. It can't explain flowers. It can't explain paint, <laughs> uh, no, but nobody trusts that intuition. Nobody says, oh, physics can't explain paint. So paint, you know, so paint is an irreducible feature of the world. No, they say you're misconceptualizing what properties things have. You think they have these irreducible colors, but actually somehow that's a feature of, of us that we project onto them. Well, okay, if you can do that with, 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 with leaves and colors and painted walls and so on, why can't you do it with your own mind? You, can, you have these strong convictions, fine. That's, not the, that's, that's, that, that's, that's an interesting psychological fact about us, and perhaps not all of us. Constrain okay. theorizing in physics. <laughs> Okay, I, I I have to respond, I guess, to all the um. Yes, yeah, so look, I think I so sh I mean, Sean's saying this is this is just a fake division. This um between consciousness not being publicly observable and the normal 
task of physics to be explaining what's publicly observable. And Barry's saying, oh, there's all these philosophical arguments and they don't, you know, don't really prove anything. And and then Keith saying, oh, it's just your intuition. OK, look, my my starting point, my starting point is there is something here that um, I, I, I know to be real with something close to certainty, namely nothing mystical, nothing magical, my own pain and it, the character of that of 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 that experience and um it, it that is not if you were just if your whole task of science was just explaining publicly observable data you would never have that explanatory task so there's i mean there's something here that is a solid data in the sense that we so it's not like this in any other case. Personal identity, that's just some abstract philosophical argument, right? There's no kind of data there. There's no starting point. Um, and, you know, people sometimes make the analogy to life or something. Okay, life, what do, how do we know about life? It's all just um, publicly observable data about, about other systems. Whereas in the case of consciousness, there, there is something uh, we know to be real. And I think we know something about its, na its character. We know, like how pain feels that's part that, that describes the character of the experience um the, the 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 character of seeing red that's a that's that's a you can be, i mean one way of illustrating this is you can be curious suppose you've you've never seen red you might think i wonder i wonder what it's like to see red and you might say ah that's what it's like it's got that qualitative character um the the, the position barry likes uh which he says solves all the problems all he gets rid of all these crap arguments uh, basically, I think it only makes sense if our only access to consciousness and introspection is just sort of pointing at something. You know, we, we've evolved this capacity to just point really inside us. You misconceived what I said, Philip. So I just want to Sorry? stop you before you go on and okay, go on. something to me I didn't say. Because I completely okay. agree that I know the character of my pain. Totally agree with it. What mm -hmm. I don't know is that it's not physical. That's not part of my experience. But do you right. think... So, so here's the crux for me. Do you, I, I was arguing this with um, uh, Brian McLaughlin, your colleague, last night. Actually, I was at one. He's Zoomed bigger one of than his, me and, and a wrestler, so be careful. Say again. He's bigger than me, and he's a champion wrestler. So. Is he really? I did not know that. I wish you'd told me that before we argued last night. He's probably going to get me now. <laughs> um, but look, he thinks he thinks when you you know that he has this view. When you just uh, w when you think about your pain or seeing red, you just kind of pointing at something. You don't know what the hell it is, and then it you know if that's the view, it could turn out to be a physical state, sure. But so the question I want to ask you, Barry, and I'd like a, 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 you know, well, I'll just ask you: do, Does that provide any information? Of course, we all say you know what it's like, the character of the the, the red experience. But does that give you information about? the experience or not sure. or is it just i know the difference between a pain and a pleasure i uh, between tasting sour cabbage which i had some last night and tasting matzo balls i had some of them last night too i definitely I know the difference between them that's information for me well okay but that's no 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 but that's I consistent i did not know that those experiences are not physical that wasn't part of the information that's consistent with just yeah, look, nobody thinks it's not. I know it's not physical. Like that's not the that's not how the argument works. That we just have some intuition that it's not physical. Nobody argues that way. No, but look, but the fact that you can distinguish experiences, 
that's not enough. That's consistent with just the the, the blind point of view, Barry, Brian's blind point of view. You know, you just, you just pointing at something, and I, but I can recognize, oh, it's one of them. It's not one of them. But it seems to me there's more than that. Just focusing on that experience, I, I have some information about it. As I say, I might be curious. I wonder what it's like to see red. And then I say, ah, that's what it's like. That only makes sense if introspection gives us information about the nature of the experience. Otherwise, how can your curiosity be satisfied? So do, do, just, just, well, it is in, 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 in grasping the character of the experience, that is part of what it is to have the experience. I agree with that. But is it is it positive information or is it just referring to something? So in answer to that question, I, I you said, said it was just referring. I was giving an analysis, an account. It was so that Keith would Keith would brought up a very interesting point before, and that was that one of the things that's been going on here is giving a kind of account about why our concepts work the way they do. And I was giving an account of that. It would be the indexical, the pointing nature of the concept. I wasn't saying anything like there's, there wasn't any information involved. I mean, information involves making distinctions among possibilities. And surely we do that when we, we know that. What we don't do is get any information about the whether it's the, the experience of pain is physical or not. No, nobody... Well, don't, well, nobody argues like that. Nobody says... No, I'm, not saying, yeah. I'm not saying anyone argued like that. No. The arguments are rather arguments of the sort. Look, I can imagine or conceive of a, of, of a zombie, something which is just like a physical being, but it doesn't have any conscious experiences. I'm, I'm not exactly sure what conceive means there, but yes, I can sort of get that. But when you talk about conceives, you're talking about the concepts. So I want to know, what is it about my concept that enables that, and can I draw any conclusions from that fact to what pain is? Let, let's let's no. And let's an think of why you can't do that was the indexical. Let, let let's think about Mary for a second. Who in her black and before she sees red, she's in a black and white room. She's never seen red, but she knows all the neuroscience, right? Um, I've sometimes given the example of Nut Norby, who's a real-life equivalent where he's a color expert, but he's got cones missing from his eyes, so he can only see black and white and shades of gray. But anyway, let's take Mary, right? And she might think, I wonder what it's like to see red. Mm -hmm. Then one day she sees red and she goes, oh my God, that's what it's like. Her curiosity is satisfied. The only way that makes sense to me, if she's, she's gaining information about the nature of color experience, information about the nature of color experience that she couldn't get from the neuroscience. What's happened is she's learned to apply the concept. So your view is she's gained a new label. Now, that, that makes that, in, in that view, you cannot make sense. Of, of her, let, me, let me finish the point. Let me finish. The many other concepts. Right. Right. So but it's not, it's I, not just the pointing. That's why I didn't like that. Yeah. But, but she, it's not just you want to come back to this comparative example again. Oh yeah. Okay. She has information because she knows it's not this, it's not this, but just focusing on the red experience itself, she will go, Oh, that's what it's like. Not comparing to other things, just the red experience. That's what it's like. It's got that character. Her curiosity is satisfied. Your view that she just gains a new label makes no, cannot make sense of that datum because you, you don't get your curiosity satisfied when you gain a new label for something. Again, so it's that's not why really I just a new label. It's connected with many other concepts, and of course, 
one of the things she wondered about before was I wonder whether it's like seeing green. And now but she you keep not. you keep coming back to the comparative notion. But don't. But but I, I'm suggesting before she compares it to any color, maybe she just sees red. Let's take an example. She just sees red. She's given a red chip, color chip, and. She would gain information there. She'd say, oh, my God, that's what red is like. So you can't give your comparative answer. And your theory that she's gained a new label is totally inadequate because it doesn't make sense of that. Sorry? What was she seeing before she saw red? Black and white. Okay. So so now she has a comparison, no? You know, I mean, after all, I mean, there's a very subtle issue going on over here. And that is whether information, there's something like, the very fundamental, what I, I don't know what you want to call it, quidditchistic nature of something that you learn about. Now, in fact, it's going to be very, very difficult to figure out what we're talking about there. We do know what it's like. I mean, in some sense, we know what it is to be able to make distinctions among things. Of course, we're making distinctions among things that we take it, that we know what they are. That's right. But it doesn't mean that there is a added sort of criticistic nature that we're somehow grasping in order to make those distinctions. Well, I mean, I can only repeat that I I don't see in that sense. I think if she's just focusing on one experience, uh, the new experience of red, I think that would go, that would satisfy her curiosity. So you want to say, okay, well, she could, because now she's got a label that she can contrast with, oh, it's not that thing, black and white. I mean, that just seems to be totally inadequate for the, the, the satisfying her curiosity. She's not just like, oh, there's this that's not that. It's like, oh, it's got that character. It's not just that because she knew, she, because of her experiences of seeing black and white, she knew what it was like to see black and white. Now she knows when she sees red, it's, seeing red is not like that. Okay, well, I guess we, listeners and viewers can. Right, we, I think we, we, we've we've given both sides of that debate. Can we bring? Can we can we can we bring can back? Just ask you something, yeah. Philip. Just before you just yeah. just to pick up on something you said earlier. You said that we had certain uh, or pra- practically certain knowledge of our own experiences, and it's a source of data and everything. And it's something that we can uh, we, we can. Uh, use as a basis to to criticize scientific theories. Well, just tell me something about, you talked about pain was your example. Okay, so you have a pain. <clears throat> Where is your pain? When you have, when you stub your toe and you have a pain, you you know this pain with a, this is a concept. Where is it? Uh, well, it's in your brain, I believe. And that you know with certainty just by having the pain? No, no, you don't know where, you don't know where it is from. So you don't from know where it is? It, so. Okay. No. Um, do you know what it, what do you know about it? Do you know what it does? Do you know what effects it has? You know, in the world? You know the character of the experience, how it feels. And I think that's well, positive. In, and I just finished the point, seeing as you've asked me the question. It, that is positive information about the experience, information that you cannot get from physical science. How the pain feels is you, information about the, about and the experience. Know, and, and you can tell that. You can tell that what you're getting when you have this knowledge of pain, that it's not just information about say the effects that the stubbing your toe had on you the 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 the, the desires oh, no, no, you can that. tell that it's not that that it's something over and above all of that or that no, 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 just by just by having the experience 
nobody argues like that. That's that's going back to Barry's straw man that it's like an intuition that it's not physical. The point is, you 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 get information about the experience, and that information cannot be got from physical science. And oh, so that's this the that's the bit I'm that's the bit I'm challenging. Okay, bit, how you know that bit? Well, I mean, so the alternative on the experience. I mean, that I think Barry would agree with me on, on that point that you, you you cannot, you know, a congenitally blind person is never going to know what it's like to see color through reading neuroscience. That that would be the claim. Yeah, I, 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 there's an intuition there, and I see what you mean. There's some sense to it, but you know, turn that into something that actually d does duty as a scientific data mark here. I don't think you can do that. The fact that what the, what you're talking about here, this vague gesturing at the character it's, of it, that, that isn't vague. just information. It, uh, about a well, when I start to ask you, what does what does this character do? Well, does it have any effects on you? Which effects? And you know, could you feel still feel that character? Could you feel the character of pain without wanting it to stop? Without feeling? Without judging that something bad was happening to you? Can you separate it out from all the various other effects that stubbing your toe has on you? Anyway, I, I'm I'm pushing my input view, and I don't want to do that. Let me just. I was just hoping to bring you back in. With Sean, but you, uh, you were going yeah. to do this yourself. We, we, we should bring was, Sean in. Sorry, I don't know what you you were going to say, but one way to reconnect this would be to ask how, since you do think there, there is uh, this data is something that do, do, well, okay, let me ask you the question. Both, do you think this data, that this introspective data, is something that can in any way engage with the sort of project that Sean is doing, or does it just proceed? It's a, just another level of describing reality that has no connection to what Sean is doing. And if it does have a connection, what is it? Where does it happen? Are you talking to me? I'm sort of talking to you, but it's a question for, for, for both of you, really. I, there's a way of seeing what you're saying as there's this, there's this other aspect of the world of the, that Sean just doesn't see, that physicists just don't see and can't see, and... I can't even construct out of the things they do see. And, it, you know, we've just got to do introspection and write, you know, poems about it or whatever and just let it go and great. And there's another which says that, and the, which is where the debate about strong emergentism seems to come in, that they do, they, they do potentially uh, uh, engage with each other and that the theories that Sean endorses don't apply in certain uh, uh, domains, such as the, the human brain. So... Which one of those do you go for? Because this seems pretty central. Which one of those do you go for? And if it's the latter, if you think they can potentially engage, how and where would the engagement come and how could we test it? Well, I think you, I think you know what my view is about how these things fit together and also that yeah. I, I don't think it's... A, because consciousness is not publicly observable, you know very well that it's not... I don't think it's simply a matter of... Uh, testability, the hard problem of consciousness is not an experimental question and so it's not going to be answered in an experiment. But maybe Sean, do you, do you want to say something about how you would think of a potential explanation of consciousness or something or as a, as a weekly emergent phenomenon? Or Yeah, I mean sorry, the, my printer just started. Let me stop it. <laughs> I'm going to stop this. Um, yeah, like as, as I said before, you know, consciousness is a higher level phenomenon. It's like temperature. It's another way of talking about the same stuff uh, at a higher level. I see, you know, when you're talking about Mary, the color scientist, I, I mean, I have no idea why this is supposed to be uh, probative in any sense. I mean, Mary has a list of facts about color. That's a certain set that that is the higher level way of talking about 
a certain set of facts about what are going on in her neurons, in her brain. She sees red for the first time. That's a completely different set of things going on in the neurons in her brain. So we describe it differently at the higher level. I, I just see no difficulty there whatsoever. Yeah, it's a tricky argument. That The argument isn't, of course, it's, it's a change in her brain that means she can now see red, of course. No, no one denies that. The point is, my, my point I'm making here is that through experiencing red, she gains new information about the nature of the experience. Information, information she couldn't get from physical science. You might say, oh, wow, that's what it's like. So, so if it's just a pattern of neural firings, and she already knew, let's say, the relevant pattern of neural firings, how can she gain this new information? How could she go, oh, that's what it, you know, how can she gain new information? On your view, she already had the, all the information. She shouldn't no. be get, able to gain anything no, new. I mean, the, the analogy I make in my book is, is, you know, like, gum. It is clearly different to say that she knows what neurons would fire if she saw red and to have those neurons fire. <laughs> you can, that, that's not you the can point. I know I, I, that's not the point if you want, but either you're begging the question about some phenomenological ex phenomenal experience being non-physical, and that's what she's gaining information about, or she's just having something different happen in her head that ever happened. And I think that that's perfectly reasonable. Of course, of course, it's she, she can only see red because of changes in her brain. Of course, no, no that's not the that my, my claim is that she in doing so, she gains information that she couldn't get from physical science. And I'm not just stating that I'm giving you an argument. My argument is her curiosity could be satisfied. She can say, I wonder what it's like. That's what it's like. And I don't see how either you or Barry uh, could could can make sense of that satisfaction of curiosity i think the, uh, the main term you just used was i don't see because i do think that i gave an explanation of what yes. was going on there information is at the level of concepts we have you know learning what the quantum state of sean's room is gives you information in terms of those concepts but it doesn't tell you how many books he has in there what you can use is because of the nature of books, if we have an, an, a functional account of what it is to be a book, we might be able to, or at least Laplace's uh, superintelligence might be able to figure out that there are books in George's room. But we can't do that. And we can't do that with conscious states like pains because they're not functional concepts. So that's why yeah. it's different information. Uh, yeah, I know you view, but... It, well, I don't want to. I'm worried. I'm going to repeat myself. What? What's wrong with it? You just keep insisting. I'm getting new information. No. Getting new information. No, I'm not insisting. I'm not insisting. I'm saying. I'm giving you an argument, and I, I, I'm saying. Hey, look, here's something we need to make sense of: that her curiosity is satisfied. And and you say, well, her curiosity is satisfied because she can compare it to other things. I want to say. Yeah, but she, her curiosity can be satisfied just by attending to the experience and, and the character of the experience. Now, your view, I mean, viewers, a lot of people won't know the, the details of, of your view. I, I know very well what your view is. It is that she gains a new label. She get, That's what she gains. That is not she the gains, way I would express it at all. <laughs> it's just not it. Okay, 
Well, I'm not saying it's your view, Sean. I'm saying it's Barry's no, view. Barry's already it's said that's not, not his view. view okay, she tell me, tell me, tell me. It's a new label. She, 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 she had that label all along, so it's not a new label. What she's now, what she happened, she kind of a new, she's been now occupied a brain state she never occupied before. Oh, yeah. Yes. All right. Okay. Yes, sure. Learned that an old label she has, which is the label it is in part, because of the way it interacts with all sorts of other labels, that's what makes the concept the concept it is. She now learns that it applies to this new state she's now. I don't. You just said I've mischaracterized your view, and then to my mind, you just said exactly exactly what, what I said. That when, you what? when you left out that she occupied a new brain state. Oh yeah. Okay. Okay. Sure. Fair. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. So she she gains a, a new brain state. I mean, she has a new brain state in her head. Why? I don't. I don't see why, why why that would satisfy your curiosity. You know, if I have something new going on in my body, that doesn't in itself satisfy your curiosity. What else does she gain? She gains a a new label, a new way of referring to something. Label. And no, no. What, how is it an old label? She didn't. She's never seen red before. She had, she, this, she had this label. She wondered, how could she wonder? What is it like to see a red red if she didn't have that 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 concept? No, but she she couldn't think of she couldn't think of a red experience as a red experience. She, I thought no, I, now she now she can, but, but before hmm. she had the she had that that concept. Now because she's had the state, because she's ex- now been in that comes into that brain state because she's just having red. She now can say, ah, that's what it is to see red. What? How, how do you account for her curiosity being satisfied? I think I just did. Say it again, please. <laughs> she wanted to know, I wonder what it's like to see red. Yeah. And, and, and Philip goes through and said, here's what it is, and waves a red flag in her feet. And now she says, now I know what it is because I wondered what it is that satisfies this concept and now she, she knows it because she's now been put into that brain state why but so I, I when you when you just use the the, the ordinary language the pre-theoretical terms saying oh yeah she she's her curiosity is satisfied because she knows what it's like to see red oh that sounds very reasonable that sounds very reasonable on my view because i think commonsensically we think she's gaining new information but it ought to still make sense when we substitute your view in and I just don't think it does. When you say her curiosity is satisfied because something different happens in her body. Well, why would that make your curiosity oh, satisfied? You know, when I, when I, I, don't know, I don't know Keith's views in detail, but I don't like the term illusionism, but probably the way he uses it is okay with me. But one of the things you've noticed in a lot of philosophical problems is that when, when philosophers construct these arguments that, that it can't possibly be that, pe- that free will can be in physics. And then some philosophers come along and show that those arguments are no good, and they show how there could be free will. It's not what those other guys really wanted for free will, because they want to hold on to their concept, which can't possibly be. Exactly. So to that extent, it's a little bit of illusion. Exactly. That's, an, that's what you're doing here. It's so I, you know, I, yeah. If I can finish this for a second, I'm Sorry. going to recounter a big argument with Peter Van Inwagen next week, when having a conference here. And he loves the mystery so much that even though I think it's clear to me that the arguments that free will and determinism are incompatible are crap, just like in this case, he's not <laughs> going to be convinced because he loves his mystery. 
This is a bit of an ad hominem, Barry. If you were doing that before. I, I would. I would not have done that unless you were doing that before. Oh, sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. I apologize if I did an ad hominem. Can I? Um, you started it. <laughs> Go on, Sean. So I think this is. Uh, I'm. I wondered why Philip uh, brought in Barry to the conversation, but I'm because he's clearly on my side, and I and I love it. And you know, honestly, Philip, this is why you're awesome because you're the best at engaging with the best people who don't agree with you, and 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 that's why I'm happy to be here. But look, this whole conversation that you've just had, forget about the substance of it. It's clearly two smart people disagreeing about subtle things, right? That are kind of contentious and tricky and oh. blah, 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 blah. Versus the laws of physics. <laughs> and the idea that on the basis of these kinds of arguments, you would say, oh yeah, sure, we should change the laws of physics. What? How? I don't know. Which equations are going to be altered? Okay. We don't know that yet. Come okay. on. <laughs> you should at least weigh what is going on here and and understand that the laws of physics that apply to the atoms and so forth in your brain have a status that is a little bit different than our feelings about the experience of red. All right. Okay. I'm glad we're coming back to that issue, right? Because so, I, and, and this connects as well to what Barry just said. I totally agree with Barry when in any other philosophical case, free will, personal identity, uh, maybe value. Because in all these cases, how do you know if the concept is satisfied? Barry said it totally right, right? You know, how do we know? Our, you know, maybe our ordinary concept of free will is incompatible with determinism. But how do we know that concept corresponds to reality, right? Uh, but in the case of consciousness, it's not just these abstract conceptual arguments. It is, um, there, I, I would say, and viewers and listeners can make their own mind up of whether they agree with this, I would say in this case, there are concepts we know are satisfied, right? If you attend to your pain and you think about it in terms of how it feels, you, you know that concept is satisfied. You know there is a state that feels that way. And that is why this is utterly unique, and that's why this has such uh, uh, such force. Now, of course, it's contentious. Like things in theoretical physics are contentious, right? But and here, here we come back to the point. Look, I think you're all proving me correct in a sense because we're having the argument about the problem of the hard problem of consciousness, right? And everyone disagrees with me. Fine, I'm I'm happy to debate. I love the debating. Hard problem is it's very hard to convince somebody who has the other view. <laughs> listen, 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 listen. This is what I'm saying. It all hangs and falls on that. This is the point I was trying to make in my presentation. It all hangs and falls on whether that whether these arguments against physicalism work. It's nothing to do with reflecting on physics. People like me, people on my side, over 30% of philosophers, as opposed to 50% who disagree, 15-20% are agnostic or don't like the question. We think these arguments work, and that gives you very strong reason, very strong reason to think, let's say, for the sake of discussion, consciousness is, is, is strongly emergent, right? We think it gives us, and why, how can it possibly give us such strong reason, these philosophical arguments? Because it's not just arguments. We're starting from something we have immediate connection with, and we, and we know, on, in our view, something about its nature, right? And just, just let me, I want to finish the point, Keith, please. Let me finish the point, right? And, and, and so we think it gives you very strong reason. Now, what are we weighing that against? The... 
it's just, I can't see anything more than simplicity reasons, right? We, 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 if we had tr tested the core theory in brains and seen that it applies, I, I would say that is very strong reason. Maybe I'm getting something wrong. I would, ha and I think a lot of viewers and listeners will get that impression that when you say there's this strong empirical reason that we've like tested, but we haven't. We've tested it with small numbers of particles. I agree there's a kind of rough simplicity reason to think, oh, well, if, if there's no reason to the contrary, probably it'll apply in brains as well. I agree, ultimately, there would have to be work to, done to make it consistent with conservation of energy, with locality, and so on. But why that doesn't that doesn't give us strong that doesn't give us strong empirical reason like you'd get if you actually tested it in brains. There is all there is a very empiric in, in terms of the empirical reasons. This is a very weak consideration, easily trumped if if the arguments against physicalism work. So what we should be doing is is having a debate about the arguments against physicalism as we have been doing. Great talking about physics is just irrelevant. Uh, yeah. No, so I think, let, let me just quickly here before, I know Keith has something to say, but of course, it, like I said, if you think that the arguments against physicalism are just 100% effective, then the mm -hmm. discussion about physics has no role. I think that it would be absurd to think that no matter what side you're on, clearly the physicalists think that they have answers to all of these questions that are purely physicalist. So they're is a role for the physics arguments here. And the second thing, which is much more important in my mind, is that, as I said before, and I'll try to say again, it's not just a simplicity argument. It's not just a parsimony argument. It's not just, well, we don't know, therefore let's extrapolate the same laws. The way quantum field theory works at a fundamental level is crystal clear on whether or not the core theory should apply in the human brain. It's not just saying, well, we don't know, therefore, who knows? It's as if you did a million experiments and you said, oh, look, momentum is conserved in any experiment I've ever done. And someone comes along and looks at your data very closely and says, well, I've noticed that even though you've done a million experiments, none of them were done over the weekend. So maybe momentum is not conserved on the weekend. That's an absurd argument. I don't if see how that's... I, let, let me finish. Let me sorry. finish now. We Sorry. understand quantum field theory well enough to know exactly when it should apply. And the answer is when the energies of scatterings between certain kinds of particles exceed some threshold. We know what the threshold is. We know what the energy of subparticle scatterings in the human brain are. It's deep, deep, deep within the understood regime. So again, you're welcome to contemplate changing the theory, but it's not a simple harmless change. It is a radical revision of our best understanding of how the universe works. And there's every good reason to put very small credence on that move, especially when you haven't even said what the revision is. I, I, I don't see how that's not um, simplicity grounds. We've got, we, we've got a, a theory that if it is if it is the correct and complete theory of um, of what goes on in brains gives precise predictions but what is our what is our evidence for that theory being the correct theory of, of what goes on in brains experiments involving small numbers of particles you yourself Sean in in the article we should put in the notes suggest you know raised ways in which that th those laws could be modified both in terms of uh, 
born rule in you know collapse dynamics um and 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 um what's the opposite of that singularity dynamics or anyway the the the, the pre-collapse dynamics dynamics yeah and and so you know how do how do how do we know that uh those modifications don't occur in complex systems i i mean what what what, what the, we'd have to explore explore the the brains i mean it's maybe it's like saying you know uh, well, in Europe, we've only ever seen white swans, so probably there are there are no all, all swans in Australia are white. Okay, you know that's a reasonable assumption. We've never been to Australia, but it's, it is precisely it, it, not like that. <laughs> why is it not like that? Because again, the it's not just a matter of this experiment, this experiment, that experiment. There is a theoretical structure. We don't just yeah, get okay, data no. on this process and this process. Using that data, we put together a picture. And the picture tells us that it should be valid in a certain regime. And again, you're welcome to try to overthrow the picture, but pr please appreciate the magnitude of the project you have so undertaken. So we, we we know it applies in brains, but unmodified. How do we know it? How do we know those modifications do we not apply? We don't know in that there are no modifications, but the modifications are incredibly profound. They're not tweaks. They're saying that there are deep mistakes in our understanding much, of locality, which is one of the most fundamental features of modern physics. But I take and, it, Sean. Like, uh, sorry, I, I take it, Sean, that you know, if you had. Uh, fairly strong evidence, like empirical evidence, a reasonable amount of empirical evidence that there were modifications in brains, then you, you know, you, you'd be happy to, you'd quite easily, you know, ch ch accept those modifications. People on my side, over thirty percent of authors, no, no. Look, no? when okay. when, a, when an experiment at CERN said, "Oh, we've discovered neutrinos right. moving faster than the speed of light." The reaction of the theoretical physics community was like, oh, let's drop everything and explain neutrinos faster than moving faster than the speed of light. It was, that's got to be wrong because we have a theory that is really, really good that yeah. says that can't happen. It <laughs> turned out that was precisely correct. When you have these credences in different versions of modifying the theory, your credences depend on how radical the modification is going to be. But the whole so, point is, so if, I'd be very happy to ultimately change my opinion in the theory, but the evidence would have to be overwhelming for good reasons. But I just, I just think. So I'll say one more thing, and then maybe bring Barry in. I, you know, I just think you're 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 assuming that the, the only things that are going to inform our theorizing about reality are, are are experiments. For people on my side of the debate, 30 percent over thirty percent losses. You know, we think that there is a very high credence that physicalism is false based on our immediate awareness of our own conscious experience and reflection upon it. You know, and not a hundred percent, but I don't know, 87, 80 percent. So there's, 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 there's the situ the epistemological situation for me is I've got very strong reason forget put, let's put panpsychist reductionism on one hand, just for the sake of discussion. We've got very strong reason to think the strong emergence in the brain. We've got, well, it would be, you know, okay, be, there's some reason to keep our theory the way it is, but we haven't actually tested it. Uh, that's a, that, that seems to be obviously a, a weaker reason. That's, and that seems to me a total, totally and, rational. And it's entirely correct to take all of these things into account. And the only contrast I will once again draw very quickly is between attempting to explain the emergence of the most complex and subtle phenomena in the known universe versus doing a dramatic modification of something like locality that underpins everything we know about modern physics.
yeah. How would how would a hydrogen atom know that it was in a brain? How would its being in a brain affect the behavior of the hydrogen atom? And would it sense that it was in a brain? Well, how, how would it work? I don't understand. Yeah, well, I don't. What, you mean strong emergence? Well, I don't, I, I'm, I'm not you sure. You point. Maybe, maybe different things have to happen. You know, the the, the the core theory doesn't apply unmodified in brains. Well, okay, so how do the, the things that the core theory talks about? How do they know they're in a brain? How do they know they're in a brain? Which well, is oh. sensitive to the oh, the rest of the brainy stuff. Well, are you, I mean, are you starting to? I mean, it's clearly not incoherent that there may be. It may be that the the, the, the dynamics change in complex system. That's clearly a coherent hypothesis, right? You start to, that that and, means giving up, as I understand, and, it, one of the fundamental. Very different from any of the physics that we. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, maybe maybe I can help. Maybe maybe I can say something that is purely physicsy that that is informative mm -hmm. here. It's not the, the point of the core theory. I should have worn my core theory T-shirt. I, I forgot to you know bring the empirical evidence here. But um, it's not just that there is an equation and that it fits the data. It's the character of the laws that it really, really matters here, which is the following, that that hydrogen atom to which Keith refers, the rules of modern physics are that the all of the particles and fields in that hydrogen atom, the electrons, protons, all the gluons and whatever, they obey an equation with the following character, that the field at any one point in space only feels the influence of other fields at exactly the same point in space. That is what locality means. That is why it is literally not possible in that framework for the hydrogen atom to know whether it is in a brain or not. So again, you're welcome to change the, the equation in a, in a certain way, but it's not a trivial change. It's throwing out all of quantum field theory. It's, it's violating the fundamental idea that fields respond to other fields at the same point in space. Somehow they have to know what's going on elsewhere in the system. That opens the door to all sorts of terrible things, faster than speed of light communication, you know, uh, violations of energy conservation, who knows? And again, you're welcome to build the theory. But in the absence of someone having built such a theory, just saying, well, we don't know yet is not good I mean, enough. But you just you're just coming back to implicitly um saying the arguments against physicalism are are not are not worthwhile because you're saying you know if all we've got is we don't know but that from my perspective that's not all what we've got we've got very strong reason to think that consciousness is strongly emergent right and uh i mean that's my point that's what we should be arguing about we've got very strong reason on one side and we've got the theory that has not been tested in brains on the other side. It's not totally, I need to think more about the locality issues. I, I certainly don't think uh, a strong emergent theory of consciousness will be inconsistent with um, conservation of energy. Uh, this is the point I think Churchland and Dennett, a mistake they made. Oh, this is the point I convinced Dennett he was wrong on. Um, but um, in terms of locality- no such theory, you're welcome to believe anything you like about it. <laughs> But, the, but again, again, Sean, you're just assuming the, the, the anti-physicalist arguments have no evidential force. It's not just no, believe I'm, anything I'm you like. I'm, I'm 
asking the anti-physicalist to say what their theory is. Of course, like, I already admitted. Well, we we don't know enough about their own force, but then that's there's other arguments that also have their force. That's, a, that's an unreasonable request because we we don't know enough about the brain to offer a detailed theory. Our argument, our reasoning, our reason is is not on empirical grounds; it's on philosophical grounds. Then perhaps uh, some humility is called for. Who knows? <laughs> well, you, I could say the same to you. You know, I, I, if if thirty percent of philosophers uh, think there is a very high credence for for this view, maybe maybe you should have a bit of humility that you your reasoning might be wrong, and there might be a very strong consideration uh, pointing in the other. So I think that goes two ways. The humility point. So can I chime in? Go. Couple of things, just about the very last remark um, about humility. Probably, if you ask physicists, you probably find a lot more dualists among physicists than you'd be su surprised. That's just a problem about physicists, though. Really, <laughs> about Philip. Philip, just a little while ago, said we know on the base of our experience that strong emergentism is right. But we don't know that on a basis of our experience. None of the points you made up before had anything to show about strong emergentism. What they might have shown is that I learned something new in some sense when I learned that I have a, I have a when Mary or Mary Lynch, I mean, she has a red experience. And I think I have an account of what it amounts to that she learned something new, even if in fact uh, her experience is just a physical state. But that's a subtle philosophical thing. One thing I really want to insist on is it's not a matter of our experience that strong emergentism is true. Absolutely not. The other thing I'd wondered about asking Philip about, or, or Sean too for that matter, is what kind of discoveries that physicists could possibly make or anybody could make about the operations of neurons or protons or, or huons or whateverons could possibly satisfy Philip's question of here's what it's like at this fundamental level and now when mary learns that then she won't have to go bother and have the experience have see something red as soon as she learns that she will know what it's like to see red i think if you reflect on that you'll see there's nothing nothing that physics could ever discover well i can certainly um uh philip and i think sean sometimes suggests as though that might be it might be the brain is so complex it may be a few million years from now people discover that some super complexity will provide an answer to philip's question if philip is around a few millions from now years from now i guarantee you it won't <laughs> I, I i can answer exactly what what uh, empirical data would, would would cast doubt on this look i mean it's a it's a it's a slightly complicated argument that we're having that i'm trying to simplify because I'm not necessarily committed to strong emergentism. I'm, you know, I'm open to panpsychist reductionism as well. So, you know, in a way, I don't have to commit on this. But, um, but I'm, I'm partly persuaded by certain arguments against any kind of reductionist picture. So, yeah, it's not as we, as I said before, it's not just instantly known on the basis of experience. But there is a hard datum here: our, our awareness of our own experience and some, and its character, and it's, it's drawing out the implications of that. As I said, I think future people will, will, will you know, it's it, it's a philosophical process of drawing out the implications of that, which I think can lead to uh, uh, it rational to have a very strong credence based on 
drawing out the implications of this datum. But I, I can tell you exactly what empirical evidence would cast out on strong emergence, testing the core theory in the brain. Of course, yeah, if we tested it and we saw, you know, the prediction, I mean, I'll give you an example, actually, Andrew Melnick, a uh, very good philosopher who's a physicalist on, on your side of the debate. And and he ends his book, A Physicalist Manifesto, very good book, saying, you know, what what we we don't really have that strong uh, evidence for physicalism. What, what would give us strong evidence is if, you know, we, we can, um, you know, reduce uh, certain, I can't remember the example he gives now, maybe um, certain reasoning, doing modus ponens and reasoning or something. We could sort of really explain that, how these different reasoning works and in terms of underlying chemistry, in terms of underlying physics, if we started to really um, re reductively explain um, um, the, the um, processes associated, brain activity associated with consciousness in terms of underlying chemistry physics, yeah, we'd have strong reason to doubt the strong emergence in the brain. But when, you have, when you've just tested the theory on, on a bunch of particles in isolation, I just don't see why that gives you strong empirical reason. I take I take Sean's point. There might be sort of reflecting on the on the virtues of the theory might give us pause for thought, but that's nothing compared to actually testing it, and that is not what we've done. Yeah. Anyway, we're sorry. Could, uh, you talked there just about drawing out the uh, implications of our uh, of our experience of. Uh, Look, what do we know for certain? We know for certain there's uh, something's happening. <laughs> something's going on here. There's nothing to draw out from that. <laughs> something's happening. I think we know more than there's, that. There's things to draw out from the way we conceptualize what's happening. Okay. Now, suppose I conceptualize what's happening here as I'm acquainted with a world where the qualities of experience are all out there. The qualities of the color are all out there and the sounds and everything's not in my mind, it's out there. I can conceptualize it that way fine. That's how most people do intuitively, that the colors are just qualitative things painted on surfaces and they're, and they're, and, they're, and I conceptualize it that way. And then I got, so I can't see how this stuff out there can be purely physical because I can't see how you know, atoms aren't colored, are they? So how, when you put a lot of them together, does it get colored? I just can't see that. And therefore I've got an argument that the world around me isn't physical. Yeah, that's a consequence of the way I conceptualized it. I drew out the consequence of the way I conceptualized it and got the view that, you know, the walls in my room are not made of atoms. Great, I proved that, well, I drew it out, out the consequences, the way I conceptualized it. You're conceptualizing your own experience in a certain way. And I agree that when you conceptualize it in that way, you get all this stuff out of it. But you're only getting out what you put in. And you... <laughs> Don't, we, we talked a bit about humility, but don't you see that there might be, might just be another way of conceptualizing it, which draws out different stuff. You're just insisting this way of conceptualizing it entails, implies this. Yes, yeah, okay. I agree, but it's not <laughs> the only way. I mean, we... Uh, well, one thing is this: this will be a difference, I think, between between you and Barry. I don't think Barry thinks it's it's a mistake in the in the way we're conceptualizing it, but. Uh, just to just to illustrate, there's a bit some diversity of opinions, uh, but look, this is back to the argument we, the the argument we we always have, Keith, which is starting points. How do you start theorizing? How do you know anything about reality? I think you three guys assume the only way we can theorize about reality is observation experiments. Uh, Why well, I, I I I of course agree that that is that that is one source of data, but. It's, it's but 
<laughs> but but there is there is even to, to get to empirical data, you have to make a lot of uh, a, a lot of uncertain commitments. Like you you know how do I know I'm not in the matrix? How do I know the future will resemble the past? How would you 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 can only you have to start theorizing with what seems most evident. And to my mind, the reality of my own pain, for example, and not just there's something going on, as you put it, Keith, that there is something with a certain qualitative character. That reality seems to me more evident than the external world. So I'm going to take that datum very, very seriously because it seems to me more evident than where, the external where I world. Nothing is sacrosanct. Exactly. I agree. I agree. I'm happy with that. Look, where I start is the pains in my toe, the colors on the wall, the smells in the air. That's where I start. And then philosophers come along and say, hey, hang on, that's not quite right. Because look, yeah, okay, so we revise that and we change. Yeah, so but you have a different starting where point. You start, it's where you stop. You don't stop at the place you start. You I'm not, I'm happy to, look, I'm not saying this is infallible. I've never said that. And if, and if there was. You are if, though, because you're saying let, that let, let, an alternative I mean, perspective on reality. I'd like to say, I'd, I'd like to say an, an empirical influence that's, that's re that really opened me up to strong emergence more than anything, because I do have the possibility of, you know, uh, Panpsychodrexism. As I've said, for, uh, talking to neuroscientists, I used to assume there was this strong empirical argument against strong emergence. Talking to neuroscientists, I'm reading Matthew Cobb's book, The Idea of the Brain. Uh, you know, a wonderful intellectual history of the brain. And basically, the 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 the, the, the take-home lesson is we know a lot about the basic chemistry of the brain, uh, neurons firing, calcium chambers, and so on. We know a lot about we know a fair bit about large-scale functions of the brain. We know almost nothing about how large-scale functions are realized at the cellular level. You know, we're only 70% of the way through mapping the maggot brain with its 10,000 neurons. We are just clueless on the working of the exactly. human brain. With that's why we can't, that we can't explain consciousness. Oh, Keith, but you're just, you're just assuming my view is wrong when you say that. Uh, you're assuming scientism, that the only, the only data to inform reality is observation experiment. When you know, I I, I think yeah, there is another about, data point. What else? You, 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 you've got to try and work out how stuff hangs together, how the thing how the yeah. thing works. And you, you, we start in you know in the middle of it, and we try and fathom our way out, and we, you know um, we try and fathom things out. We, <laughs> I, the, you know, I agree. I agree. If if, if I if trying I, to understand how stuff hangs together. If we t if we if we tested the core theory in the brain and we saw it was correct, I would say that's bloody good reason to think there's strong emergence. You, but until you give me that kind of get, evidence, you want to get people in particle accelerators. Right? I, I, I mean, I, the ethics yeah, committees are going to have some problems with it. Well, just because it's hard to do, I don't think we should pretend the evidence is is stronger Maybe than it we is. We can get people near particle accelerators and get them to think about the particles a lot. Maybe would that help? Uh, yeah, it needn't be testing the core theory in brain. It could be, you know, explicating brain activity associated with conscious experience in terms of underlying chemistry and physics. I, I just don't think we've maybe maybe one issue we haven't we've touched on. It might be it's, if, I don't know if Barry and Sean have ways they want to go. Is, is, is to think about this this sort of patchwork, this dappled world conception that Nancy yeah. Cartwright has. This idea that all science is doing is it, 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 it is kind of idealizations restricted to certain domains and that we really don't know what happens outside those domains. Uh, I, I, it's a you know, central issue. Well, uh, yeah, let me say something because I, I do think that this is, uh, I don't want this to slip by. Hmm. We do experiments. I mean, 
very parenthetically, I don't know about Barry, but of course I'm happy to take our conscious experience as data. I'm not ignoring that. That's a, that's just a straw man. But the important question is the domains of applicability of our theoretical ideas and where we might expect deviations from them. And that's why I think that the momentum being conserved on weekdays rather than weekends is a fundamentally different example than swans being white in Britain versus Australia. Because if you only observe swans in, Australia, in, in Britain and you haven't seen them in Australia, it's clear, theoretically, why they might be different in Australia. There's a clear difference that is relevant to the situation. Whereas if all of your data about conservation of momentum happens to fall on weekdays and not weekends, there's clear theoretical reasons to expect it to also extend to the weekends. And those theoretical reasons are relevant. In the case of the hydrogen atom in the brain, all of the theoretical understanding we have says that the hydrogen atom should obey the same rules in the brain as it does everywhere else. So the burden is on someone to show how it should be modified. But Sean, when you say it, the reason this is disanalogous is because we've got good reason to think that swans might be different in Australia. I mean, you're just... Again, you're just assuming the anti-physicalist arguments don't work. I mean, no, no, I'm just not referring to the anti-physicalist. I've said over and over again, you're welcome to consider the anti-physicalist arguments. I would think it would be a mistake as a good philosopher to give them credence one. And therefore, yeah. we should have other arguments that we are also considering. And but the people, difficulty yeah. of changing the laws of physics in the brain is one of them. But what if we give it 80% credence? Do whatever you want. I'm just I I am I've said at the very beginning of our very first interview, I am neither educated nor especially interested in consciousness or the brain. My mm -hmm. point is that it is not cheap and easy to change the laws of physics, and that should be one of your considerations. Do you think it would overcome a credence of 80%? Depends on what your credence in the laws of physics is. <laughs> if if I have 99.9999% credence that the core theory is correct in the brain, then yes. And you think you've got 99.9% credence uh, no, based on... that was an on... example. I okay. Think that they what, what is your matter. credence? I so, don't have 80% credence in the anti-physicalist arguments. I think that they're pretty bad. <laughs> so to well, me... Well, think about what credence one should have in philosophical arguments, given their history. Okay? Yeah. I mean, come on. You know, <laughs> there's so many philosophical arguments that have proved all sorts of things. I don't even want to start with it. But, um, uh, you know, so my credence that a philosophical argument is going to trump the, um, the, the theoretical structure that has been built up in physics, I, I would, you know, it would have to be an unbelievable, I, it would have to be very personal that somehow, I'm really convinced by this particular philosophical argument. I've never encountered a philosophical argument like that. I mean, to repeat, Barry, I, I would agree with you in any other case, it's it's only in this case because it's not just abstract reasoning. It's starting from a data point, which is, and the data point is, um, you know, not just that I have experience, but that that I I'm a I'm aware of some information about it, namely its character and 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 that, that is depends what what conclusions you draw. I completely agree with you that we have introspection and feeling and experience, and I don't want to call it an illusion at all. I think it really is the case that I have a tickle on my toe or an itch in my toe. Okay, it's not an illusion at all. But now what do I want to draw from that? 
And is there an account of how it is that it's right for me to say, it's true for me to say that, you know, I didn't know what it was like to, to taste, what did I taste recently? I had a kumquat recently, which I hadn't had before. Okay, I now know what it's like to taste the kumquat. Okay, I learned something for sure, but I don't see any reason to conclude from that that I've learned something about there being anything non-physical, particularly, then all, all of Sean's reasons come in over here, but I don't even think, I, I don't think that in some sense, Sean's reasons, um, considerations apply when somebody gets into an argument about strong emergentism, where they could be strong, these properties which affect how people move around their limbs or something like that, that we don't know about that. That's where they apply. But they're, they're even being brought up because somebody has become very convinced by these anti-physicalist arguments. And, and when there's a good analysis of why they're convinced by it, in, such that it doesn't require rejecting physicalism, and furthermore, that there's nothing that anybody could discover from what's going on in the physical world that could ever satisfy the anti-physicalist anyway, the dualist. You never really answered that. You're shaking your head. No, don't, no, I gave you. I said, I said what evidence. No, no, you didn't. What you did was to tell me how you could, you, how, how you, you might make discoveries which would tell you now that, well, strong emergentism in the brain is false. But what you mm -hmm. didn't do is to say how finding out that is going to tell you how Mary learns the, what you want to know as, the, as what it is like to see red from the physical characterization of stuff. That's what you didn't do. Okay, fair point. I guess, I mean, I guess there are these interesting issues around charm, what Chalmers talks about, the, the, the meta problem of consciousness. Like, why do we, why do we um, think there's a hard problem of consciousness? Uh, can we explain reductively our intuitions on consciousness? May, I mean, maybe, I'm not, I'm not too certain, but maybe if, you know, if there was a totally reductive explanation of our intuitions about consciousness and that could be presented, maybe that would make me think, Ah, this is just something natural selection has brainwashed me to think. Well, I told to Dave about the meta problem. He said he met a problem which has made a career for his, for him, and for many other people. That's his meta problem. <laughs> well, I wouldn't be so cynical about it. I think there's a an interesting kind of project. Uh, supposed to try to be you, about it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Do you want to? Um, do you want? Do you want to have a quick chat about the? Um, this this final slide I've got here about like whether we have to understand this as a violation of the core theory is that worth doing or are we have we had enough? <laughs> what do you think? I think we agree that it is a violation of the core theory, and we've had enough. We should get to go on to questions from the peanut gallery. Oh yeah, okay. Yeah, let's let's have a few questions. So we've got. Well, I just want to. I just I just want to note for the record that I I don't think that's so obvious, <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> I don't think it's a very, I think it's a terminological issue. I think there are, I mean, I just, just as has already been mentioned, my colleague, Nancy Cartwright, you know, is quite esteemed and influential philosopher of science on her conception of the, her philosophical interpretation of the laws of physics, that would not be true. So I don't think it's sort of totally straightforward. She doesn't think anyway. there are laws of physics. Sorry again? She doesn't think there are laws of physics. She does. She thinks that they have just have ceteris paribus clauses built into them so that they only... She said, I actually have a quote, I just put it in something I wrote, but she says that if there's no God, there are no laws. Right. So it's true that she then decides to use the phrase with ceteris paribus terms. 
but she's an illusionist about laws. Okay, fair point, but you could have, it would be a philosophically acceptable position to have a view closely related to Nancy where, where you are a realist about laws, but they have a ceteris paribus uh, clause built into them. Yeah, and I, I think she's said that in, in, in certain contexts. Okay. Just one right. thing, Philip. Sometimes you, 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 we've been talked a lot about what Mary learns and the curiosity being satisfied. So maybe just drop me an email sometime and tell me that uh, what she learns about about what it's like to see red that doesn't use any relational terms or any demonstrative terms or any indexical terms or anything like that. Tell them something about the intrinsic nature of red that she learns. Yeah. Well, obviously, you know, it's a commitment of my view that's, that that's not possible. And I mean, I could defend why that's not a negative feature of the view, if you like, but Difficult do you want, do you want me to do that? Or, do you want me to do that or should we get on to questions? Well, well I, I, I'm only winding up, but it's just <laughs> difficult to then take that as a basis. As a, The datum is a pretty slippery one. You can't convey what red looks, how what it's like to see red or how pain feels uh, to someone who hasn't felt it. But still, we know with something close to certainty that there, there, there is the experience with that character and that is positive information about reality that should factor into but our theorizing. use it in any sort of uh, you know, constructive way, how she can in incorporate it with other bits of knowledge and use it and theorize on the basis of it. But anyway, I was only winding up. Let's okay, well, it's the argument we have a million times. Over. Okay, yeah. should we get some, a, a few, I forgot about questions actually. Does anyone, oh! Have I made the comments disappear? Oh, they're, they're back again. Okay, who wants to ask a question? Do you want to... Uh, a question. Mark. Oh, right, my friend. Mark. This is my friend, uh, Mark, disagreeable me, who we argued for two years when he was living in New Zealand, argued on Twitter, and then he's moved to Durham, so we hang out a bit now. Okay. Is, is, it, strong, is it strong emergence if there's a psycho... I could put it on the screen, can't I? Is it strong emergence if there's a psychophysical law which states that and how we have phenomenological consciousness without any downward causation on particles? Discuss. Who wants to take that? Anyone want to take that? I mean, if I think if I understand the words correctly, uh, without any downward causation on particles, then it is not a strong emergence because the behavior of the physical system is the same. I think strong emergence really is not just about extra stuff going along with it, but a true dynamical difference, in my understanding. It'd be epiphenomenal, I guess, wouldn't it? If, yeah. If there wasn't any. I'd add that there are no laws like that that are in any sciences, really. Yeah, so there is, I mean, it's a, it's a good point to raise that, that there is the epiphenomenalist position that consciousness is radically new, but it doesn't do anything. And so... Is that strong emergence? I guess it's just a terminological issue there. I suppose today we've been talking about strong emergence as something that would make a causal difference. But there's also a clear sense in which the epiphenomenalist position is strong emergence because consciousness is sort of radically it new. It's Chalmers' view, I think, or something like that. Or, it used or, to be Chalmers' view. I don't think he's so sympathetic to epiphenomenalism these days. But uh, Paul Marco, question for Goff. Do human cells in the brain perform their cellular chemistry according to the laws of physics? Well, does, I mean, the strong emergentist position would be, which, I mean, as I say, I'm open to both a panpsychist reductionist and a strong emergentist, would be uh, there are going to be some things going on in, in the brain that you would not expect just from underlying chemistry and physics. Actually, it depends whether chemistry is emergent. My colleague, 
uh, my colleague Robin Hendry thinks chemistry is strongly emergent. So, but let's assume that's not the case. Let's assume um, chemistry is reducible to physics. Then there's going to be some things going on. Um, and how exactly the, the, that you wouldn't predict from underlying chemistry and physics, how exactly that's worked out. We just, I, I agree with Sean that ultimately there would have to be serious theorizing how, how these new dynamics uh, modify our, our understanding from our current understanding of the laws of physics. But, um, but we don't know anywhere near enough about the brain to, to know what that would look like yet. And then you might say, well, why do I think it's the, it could take the idea seriously on these philosophical grounds, right? I'm not, I'm not a proponent of scientism. I don't think the only way to theorize about reality is observation experiments. I think drawing out the implications of uh, conscious experience that we're directly aware of is also a, a crucial source of data. Does anyone else want to come in on that or should I bring in a question for others? Well, I mean, just to say that uh, it's not even a tiny little bit of an effort of a, of a meager um, start to changing the laws of physics in such a way that they would look strongly emergent. There is just the wish <laughs> being expressed that maybe that will help things somehow. Well, wish, wish sounds like there's no evidential support here, but you know. There's no construction of a better theory. Sure, I can agree with that. I can agree with that. But I still think there's strong reason to take the possibility seriously in the absence of that because it's the, 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 source, of, the source of credence here, the source of taking it seriously is not a scientific empirical one, but a philosophical one. If I were yeah. cynical, which as you know, I am not, I would say that if, if people really believed that, they would really be devoting themselves to building such a theory, even if it's not the right theory, just to, as an well, existence proof, show that it could happen. Because many Nobel Prizes await the person who overthrows the core theory in precisely the correct way. I mean, we just, I just think we don't know enough about the brain to really, to really make a start on that. I'd it's not a question about the brain, it's a question about physics. How could you possibly change the laws of physics in something like the way that is being imagined here? Well, I mean, you, you in, in the paper in response to me that people can go and look at, you, you raise a couple of in very broad brushstrokes possibilities. I just don't think we anywhere near enough knowing enough about the brain to... But there's certain things you'd have to do regardless of what, you know, about things like locality. You'd have to be yeah. building theories, that alternative theories that, that drop that. Now, I'm not sure you need, it's not totally transparent to me why you need to drop locality. Because you um, keep saying in the brain. Okay? Yeah, and there so, you go. <laughs> you know, you can't say in the brain and then. <laughs> yeah, but it could be, it could be, for example, it, it could be that the, um, the strongly um, there's some kind of strongly emergent entity like a, a you know a comp not not like spiritual entity but there's there's some kind of strong unity to the composite whole and that strong unity sort of emerges in a progressive way that respects locality well, that's got to affect individual uh, atoms and so there's got to be a violation of yeah, yeah. No, this is this is crucially important, and I'm I'm understanding that maybe we disagree about this. It has to be non-local. If it's not non-local, it's the core theory. If you're gonna change the core theory in a way that only shows up when the atom is in a brain, the the other atoms in the brain are not in the same location as this atom. That's I'm, a non-local effect, and that's I'm, I'm, it's not even atoms. Change. So the atoms take up room in the unities. 
They're fields. That's that's a, the yeah. fundamental nature. And the fields just have values at points. So why couldn't there be an um, a, a, a strongly emergent field that emerge that uh, that respects locality? Well, that, there there could be new fields. That's what I wrote the whole paper explaining <laughs> why there aren't, and we know that there aren't, <laughs> but. If the new field knows the difference between being in a rock and being in a brain, it has to have non-local impacts, non-local influences. I, I need to think more about this. I'm, I'm so I, I, I won't, I won't, I won't carry. I, it is something I should have thought more about, really. Um, okay, question. Uh, Barry seems to be a qualia realist. How about Sean? I'm a qualia realist in exactly the same way I am a temperature realist or a table and chair realist. These are real categories that exist in a higher level theory and have no fundamental existence. Do you, you do you think they're just the talk of consciousness is just a, a way of talking about complex behavior? Yeah. Yeah, I want to make that clear because I think I think that really mm, I think a lot of people if you if you sort of say, oh, you know, we'll one day explain consciousness in terms of the brain, people think, oh yeah, that might be. But if you say talk of consciousness is just a complicated way of talking about behavior, that's oh, what wait, I'm that, that, that was a different sentence you just said. <laughs> Sorry, you changed well, the sentence that I'm purportedly agreeing with. Oh, did. Oh, oh, sorry. Did I mischaracterize you in that sense? This is a part of a higher level theory, and it plays an explanatory role in accounting for behavior. It is a. It is nothing. I don't like to use words like just or merely or whatever, but it is uh, a way of drawing together, like any higher level emergent phenomenon, a summary of many, many possible things that could be going on at lower levels. It's not uh, an intrinsically new thing, just like temperature is not. But I think most people think, you know, who take the hard problem seriously, not necessarily opponents of physicalism or materialism, think we're not trying to explain behavior. We're trying to explain subjective experience that we're immediately aware of, uh, you know. So my point again and again is that the idea of subjective, sub subjective experience is a concept within an explanatory higher level framework that also includes behavior. And we can talk about it perfectly sensibly uh, as it relates to behavior. When I have pain, to say that someone has pain plays a causal role in how I understand the world. As many people have pointed out, if I were a robot that didn't have any conscious experience and went down to earth from an alien civilization and met people and tried to talk about people, I would very soon be talking about their inner, inner conscious states because it plays an explanatory role. But Tony, could I, I mean, could I just, say about, something here? No. Go I, I just, I just want to say that I, you know, I totally agree with, with, with what Sean wants to say about consciousness. I, I, I would just, ditch the word qualia because it comes with so much philosophical baggage and if you use it people will immediately start saying ah but then you need to explain the right. intrinsic meal of the thing that's immediately and yada yada and you're just dodging the issue and you're you're explaining consciousness away and yada 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 you know let's just agree with get that. some new vocabulary here that's the whole point of talking about the illusion here is to say that it's this something over and above all that that's illusory and let's, you know, as, as, as Dan Dennett says, cut the tangled kite string about quality, throw the thing away, and let's invent a better theoretical vocabulary that can, you know, doesn't come with all this hideous theoretical baggage. So but the position is the same, but, you know. Um, I wouldn't call myself a quality of realist because it just invites expectations that you can't meet and shouldn't remotely want to meet. 
I don't tend to use the word myself. Um, well, phenomenal yeah. properties, phenomenality, whatever, all the, what it is like, there's all this stuff that kind of reifies this, this uh, you know. That, Should we do a couple, two more questions right. or something and then call it a day? I've, I've really enjoyed this discussion. Sorry if I've got a bit heated, but it's only because I'm having fun. Uh, okay, what's the next question? Queerdo, what does it mean to be physical? Wow. Oh. Barry, what do you reckon? That's Barry. What does it mean to be physical? Somebody's talking about getting physical, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we do these conversations over Zoom, so that we do not throw hands. <laughs> I, I miss the, the idea of this, the term physical, the way I think about it, was introduced in order to talk about what a, is found to be what's fundamental. And what's fundamental is whatever it is that makes up paradigm objects that we think of as being physical objects, like tables. Well, I don't know if tables paradigm, but sticks and stones and, and rocks and mountains and, 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 and weather and, and stuff like that. And then the interesting idea about physicalism is that whatever it is that gives an account of the behavior of this stuff gives an account of the behavior of everything else. That's what I think physicalism is. I mean, it's not very precise what I just said. It's a, it's a, it's a notion that's it's used to talk about a kind of a, um, what to say, a, a view that developed within the development of, 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 of science ever since the 17th century. Uh, so if physicalism would have been false, if it turned out that it was discovered that there was something that's involved in the behavior of, let's say, living things, which was not involved in the behavior of sticks and stones and so on. Then I would have said that physicalism, as I understand it, was false. People thought that for a while, they would view called vitalism, but that turned out not to be true. So I think there's good reason to think that physical, not just for that reason, but from the history of the subject, it's good reason to think that physicalism is true. The, the last bastion, is the mind about that. And there, as far as the behavior of, of human beings and other creatures are concerned, it looks as though physicalism is right there. We've been arguing mostly that maybe it's not right because there's something that emerges, some unity that happens in the brain or something which makes humans move their, twitch their noses in a way that's different from, from what could be accounted for in terms of physics or something like that. That's one issue. The other issue, which is the other part of it, which we kept going back and forth between, is there's this feature, the what it's like feature. And I don't think physics will ever be able to account for that, not because of the defect in physics or because of the falsity of physicalism, but because of the nature of the concepts that we employ when we're talking, thinking about the what it's like feature. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's interesting actually that... Um... Yeah, I mean, again, just I, I don't like the analogy with, with life because with life, the data is all just public observation experiments, whereas there's there's something else we need to account for here, Some are the, the feelings, yeah. experiences. That's we divided never... up into these two parts. The accounting for the behavior. I see, yeah. Physicalism would have been false if, if the stuff that would counted for the behavior of sticks and stones couldn't yeah. account for life. On the other hand, there's another thing in the world. We, I think we all... Are realists in this sense about. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I was a 
thought that Keith might not have been a realist about experience because he's called an illusionist. But it's, I, I think he's willing to say we really do have pains in our feet. He just thinks we're, what's the illusion is. The illusion is what Philip. Philip is the person who's under the illusion. He's yeah. under the illusion that he can draw from the fact that he has those experiences that they're not physical. Well, I, mean, yes, I, I think he's misconceptualizing. I mean, I, think we have, I mean, have experience in the everyday sense. Obviously, we have pains and things. <laughs> Nobody denies that. It's it's how you conceptualize them. I mean, I think there's just these things that are happening, right? Whatever they are, I don't know what they are. Mm -hmm. uh, what's an what's illusory is the uh, sort of um, I don't say the concept. We misconceptualize those things, and in such a way that we're thinking about something that doesn't that, that, that's illusory, and then we're drawing out the conclusion. The, the yeah, except the part misconceptualized. I think it's very yeah. essential to those experiences that we have the very concepts we have of them. So I wouldn't say it's a that we that would somehow things would be better if we gave up those concepts so we no longer misconceptualize. Yeah, sure, surely, I, I surely. Think we shouldn't give them up. I think. I think. I, I mean, look, the, you know, the, 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 our ways of talking. You know, they're, they're, they're rooted in all, all sorts of social stuff, and they're, they're great. They're fine. They're, you know, what we shouldn't do is take them seriously and think that they need. They, they're going to force us to revise our, our, our physics or something. You know, it's what uh, you know. It's, it's an issue about the, the, the scientific status of these concepts. That's, That's right. Can I? Well, we can I? We shouldn't reconcept. Well, we shouldn't give up the, the way we use our concepts it's, or what it's like concepts either. Okay. I, I, I'm not convinced we actually I, use them as much as philosophers think. I mean, we talk about what the world's like, not what we know, what not what our. Uh, yes, we do we, we're, it's, we're much less introspective than philosophers think. So we we talk about we a, the, the illusion, if you like, is that the, the world is is packed with qualities in that sense. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, whatever you know, nobody suggests we revise our, our ordinary. Uh, uh, ways of talking about ourselves and describing yeah. what we're not. Yeah, of course not. No. Okay, should we do a final question, guys? I'm just doing them in order. People put them up. Andrew Irish, if we had a complete physical theory explaining how conscious experience arises, would there be something? Would there still be something to explain, knowing how red experiences versus experiencing it? Do you want to take that, Sean? Well, I'm not exactly sure what is being presumed by the construction of a complete physical theory explaining how consciousness arises, uh, because there's two things going on. There's a complete physical theory of the physical stuff and what it does, and then there's connecting to the higher level theories, which is still more work, right, in which we haven't done. You know, my claim is that we understand all the laws of physics underlying the basic stuff of which you and I are made. That doesn't mean we can derive you and I from the basic laws of physics. Maybe we could someday. That kind of derivation aspect, I think, is a little bit of a, a fake, like that, that's a, a criterion that people invoke, but it never really happens. We can't derive tables and chairs from the standard model of particle physics, but we're pretty sure that they're completely compatible with the standard model. So I think that there's just knowing the underlying laws of physics leaves plenty to still be explained in understanding the dynamics of the higher levels and how they connect with the lower levels. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think if, yeah, if, if there was a complete physical theory explaining how consciousness arises, then that, that would be the end of the story. But I think there's good reason to think there couldn't be. Uh, and again, repeating the point, you know, it, the argument is not, yeah, we still, so even if we had a complete theory that explained consciousness, that wouldn't make you have a red experience by reading the theory. I think that's the misunderstanding of the knowledge argument that I, I think Sean is still a bit subject to. But, uh, but it's, it's not, the point is not that, oh, you should have 
you know, if you're a materialist, you should have a red experience through reading neuroscience. Now, nobody thinks that. You've got to have your brain in a point in a certain way. The point is, when Mary, when we, when Mary sees red for the first time, she gains new information about the nature of red experiences that she couldn't get from the neuroscience. The, I mean, the analogy I give in my book is like, you know, oh, I've, I've, we're, it's, we're going on too late. Ask how she could, how she could, uh, how she could encode that information and how many bits it would take to transmit it. I'm not going to be drawn. <laughs> okay, guys, this I've I, I've re this has been really really good fun. Thanks, thanks for joining us, Barry. Thanks, Sean, for coming back. Do you have any final comments apart from conceding total surrender? I think Philip, you're a really brave guy. <laughs> well, this is what I wanted, right? This is what it's all about. I'm uh, I'm happy. I you know, I mean, I think the thing is, I I do feel. Yeah, I mean, I feel I feel quite confident. I think when you you know, I'm I'm only saying these things because I, I do feel quite confident about them. I think I think when you're not sure about something and you're trying to have a debate, you end up, you know, just stumbling or something. But I think you know, I'm I'm, I'm this is the way you test your ideas I by. Not, I don't feel sure about anything, so I don't feel that as you said. No. But what I I do think is this: I do think what. The way I view philosophy often is philosophers often, here's what I think of. I remember when I was a kid, I saw a cartoon in which there were these creatures who built up these mountains and they were like throwing these bottles at each other full of red paint and green paint. And when they got, one got hit by green paint, they turn green, they all got hit by red paint, they turn red. And that's what philosophers are like. They, they build up these things and they're throwing things at each other all the time. We're really, really pretty good at throwing things. Then we're, we're pretty good at building defenses up to stop the growing things and so on. And it's great because we keep getting paid. <laughs> that's that's a nice analogy. I'm not sure I liked where that went. but um, um... And, and we learn a lot about it. I don't think uh, truth truth is, is 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 hard to get at. So I think we learn a lot by doing mm. all of this. And I'm not think I'm gonna find the truth yeah. much anything in my life. I mean you say I'm brave, but just to return to the point, this is th you know, thirty percent of philosophers ag agree with me, fifty percent of philosophers agree with you guys. It you know, it's it's I'm standing up for the silent majority silent minority. That's what <laughs> I will so my, my my closing thought is just to point out that the physicalists here all have books in their backgrounds and the panpsychist doesn't. So where does the intellectual heft lie uh, philosophically? This is what we were talking about before we before we went live. And um, I think it's a yeah. perfectly valid. Well, this is because you guys, you guys need books. Well, I've got arguments. I don't need this. It's, uh, <laughs> You're supposed to break into song. You have the keyboard behind you. That's that was your. We're gonna do a, a special uh, musical. Just in case ending. the musical, the musical edition will be one I look forward to. <laughs> musical episode. All right, thanks, guys. It's been lots of fun. Thank you very really, much, both. Uh, look, really, thanks bye. again. See you. See you soon. Um, I've forgotten how. Kick you out now. Bye, bye, Barry. All. Bye, Sean. Wow. I think that was the, possibly the most intense mind chat we've had. A good way to celebrate our anniversary. What do you think, Keith? Uh, yes, it was, it, was, it was pretty intense. Uh, uh, we, I am not sure we made a lot of 
progress, but I think we're all perhaps a little bit clearer about where we, where we, where we stand. Uh, yeah, I think I'm, the, the yeah. point about 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 locality is, I think, a pretty important. I need, view. I so need to think about locality. That's a good point. I should have. I do need to think about that. But that but you know what I wanted to do for my own mind is is to is to test these views in the, you know, yeah. they, what, what's the analogy of just where steel is tested in fire, tested. you know, yeah. and I, I, I feel, um, I don't know. I still, I still feel confident in that basic comparison between if there is very strong credence on this side and then there's, uh, you know, we haven't actually tested the theory in, in the brain then anyway, I, I, I still feel confident about that argument. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm an idiot, but but that, that is what I wanted to do for my mind. I mean, I'm, I am genuinely always open-minded on these things. Your credence, if, you're not, if you're not careful, your credences there are going to lead you to epiphenomenalism. I'm not sure. I, if, if, That's if, a possibility. But yeah, I mean, it, as I say, it was empirical talking to scientists that sort of opened me up more to strong emergence. And yeah, I mean, I am genuinely open-minded on this. And um, yeah. I mean, I, I think... Who knows? I, 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 I mean, you know, you know how we differ, but I think you do a good job in... I think what something you're, you're you're right about is that you're articulating something that is quite a widespread intuition, certainly among philosophers, a widespread view, and I, and actually, and among the general public, I think uh, certainly among the general public, <laughs> in our in our culture, uh, it's 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 a pretty widespread view, I think. Certainly, certainly among people who are kind of interested a bit in philosophy, okay? So it doesn't take long to get this to get yourself convinced of this view. And it's very useful to have that view clearly stated, explicitly stated, and traced down its implications explored. And if you're going to have someone do that, you need to do it in a, you know, it needs to be done in a rigorous and uh, uh, you know, precise way, and that's what you're doing. And whether you're right or wrong, that's, I think that's a useful thing to do. It's a useful Thanks, thing for us Steve. to I do. I really appreciate that. Um, my wife just messaged me that my, my daughter's desperate me to, to read Harry Potter for every night this week. I haven't put my kids to bed because I've been at this conference that Sean was at as well, actually. So I, I, I'm going to probably have to dash. Uh, is it the fourth one? Um, I think because she's only five, I think we need to stop reading them, actually, because they're getting the adult. He's 14 now. Yes, um, yes. I'd, I'd better dash. So. Sorry to suddenly cut off, but that no, was 12 minutes ago and um, I didn't look at my phone. I've really enjoyed that. Happy anniversary, Keith. Happy anniversary. We'll be back later this month, won't we? Sorry? We'll be back later this month, I think. Yes. Yes. Keep following. Look out for updates on Twitter. Thanks a lot. Oh, oh, and, you know, we do agree, is don't we? Consciousness is wherever it is. And nowhere else. Do it again. <laughs>